morning. How y'all doing? Awesome. Well, here a little bit about me. Uh, I'm originally from Chicago. I grew up in the Chicago suburbs. And so a couple of things have come out from Chicago. And uh, one of the biggest ones is uh, I love Chicago-style pizza. I love Chicago-style pizza. Now, when I say Chicago-style pizza, first of all, by the way, you can start to hear my Chicago accent start to come out if I talk about Chicago Chicago foods. Like Portillo's Italian beef and Chicago-style Giordano's pizza, maybe some roasted corn in there. It's all good. Doubles. Um, (laughs) But no, when I talk about Chicago-style pizza, when I say that around here or other places that aren't Chicago, people think I just mean deep dish. It's like, no, 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 no. Let me, let me. When I say Chicago-style pizza, there are some definitions. All right, I love Chicago-style pizza. It has this, like, thick, buttery crust. It's, like, both crispy and fluffy at the same time. It's got, like, way too much cheese. Like, there's, you, you put more cheese than you think you should, and then you keep going. <laughs> then it has the toppings, and then the definitive thing for Chicago-style pizza is the sauce on top. I know, and now everybody like, who has never had Chicago-style pizza, they're like, what are you talking about? No, seriously, it's like this thick, and it looks like a cake, but it's pizza, and it's awesome. <laughs> now, I love Chicago-style pizza, Lou Malnati's pizza, Giordano's pizza, those are my favorite. Oh, my goodness, I love Chicago-style pizza. I also love bad science fiction. Specifically bad science fiction. I don't know why. There's just something about watching a TV show with the bumpy-headed alien of the week and exploding spaceships that just holds my attention. I also love my wife. I adore my wife. Uh, She is smart. She is beautiful. She is funny. She's tough. She can beat me up. (laughs) I love my kids. They constantly make me proud. I love loud music. I love good coffee. I really love coffee. Don't love that. <laughs> I love the smell of lilac. I know that's like a little frou-frou, like for a guy who just talked about barbecue and pizza. But no, I, for some reason, I just love the smell of lilac. I love my parents. I love creating new things. I love metalworking. It's one of my hobbies. I love, love barbecue. Love, love barbecue. I love 90s movies, vacations playing Minecraft with my kids. The word love sure does a lot of heavy lifting, doesn't it? We talk about love. Like in English, it seems to mean like powerful emotion. Love can be a strong like or desire. Uh, It's also the only appropriate response when talking about Chicago-style pizza. But how can the same word be used over and over again to describe both the relationship I have with my wife and the relationship I have with four-inch deep, buttery, Chicago-style pizza. (laughs) What does this word even mean? See, we're in this series that we're called A Weary World Rejoices. And really, this is just a way to go through some of the four themes of the Advent season uh, as a way to prepare our hearts for Christmas and its message. Uh, several weeks ago, we started this off by talking about hope and how the birth of Jesus ushers in hope in a world that was quickly losing hope in their future. Uh, two weeks ago, we talked about peace, uh, specifically shalom, and how God's idea of peace is not merely the absence of conflict, but rather it's a wholeness, a contentment that we have when we're fully put together. 
Last week, we talked about joy. We celebrated our children's ministry, and they came up here and sang a whole bunch of songs. It was awesome. And then, uh, and then Jed talked a little bit about the difference between circumstantial happiness and true biblical joy. Today, we're going to talk about love. Love. Specifically, about how God built this Christmas story around this foundation of amazing, life-changing, mind-blowing love for his children. Now, English, we have this word love that can mean a whole bunch of things, like I said. And you've probably heard it said a hundred times that other languages have different words for love. They have several different words for love. In fact, Greek, the, word, the language that much of the New Testament is written in, has as much as six words that could be translated as love. Now, that concept is sort of correct. Because it's not that these languages have different words for love. It's that for some reason, all of these different concepts that different cultures have, in English, we just have one word to describe all of it. Someone in the first century speaking Hebrew or speaking Greek would not confuse the word that they would describe their relationship with their spouse ever with their relationship with their favorite food. They're just not the same concept. But for some reason in English, we have one word, love. So, if we're going to talk about love, we're going to talk about biblical love, what, what God means when he talks about love, we need to actually look down at the root meaning of this word. What is God talking about when he's talking about love? Well, in the Bible, most times that you see love, when he's talking about God loving his people, we're talking about a, a word agape, agape love. What agape love is, it doesn't really have a, a, a perfect translation in English, but the closest I could say is sacrificial love, committed love. Um, agape love describes kind of the relationship a parent might have with a child. It describes an action taken on behalf of another person. Um, it can describe even part, part of that can describe the commitment between spouses. Okay? in terms of this commitment, sacrificial, action-based love. This is the type of concept that we need to wrap our minds around when we start looking at biblical love and how Jesus coming into the world brings about biblical love in our world. Uh, Luckily, there's, a, there's an easy section of scripture that goes into detail about the definition of love. You've probably heard it a thousand times if you've ever been to a, uh, a wedding recently. Uh, it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, um, one of the most popular verses ever read at a wedding. Um, it's uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8, and uh, it goes like this. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. So what are the things that this, this verse says that love is? Patient, love is kind. Love is humble and gracious. Love, love lifts others up. It's about the other. It's always about the other. It lifts up others. It's peaceful. All right? Love rejoices in the truth. There's no falsehood in this idea of love. Love always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. 
And it always perseveres. It always perseveres. I want to sit on that for a second. See, if you go on to the next verse, in verse 8, it says, love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. Love never fails. So in other words, what this is saying is there are powerful things in this world. Knowledge is great. Wisdom is great. The ability to understand what's coming next, great. But love outlasts all of them. Love. If we're going to truly wrap our mind around love as God is presenting it, it's painting this image of something that is incredibly powerful, impossible to kill, impossible to go. It, it always perseveres, but it's also gracious and kind, and it's about the other. It is sacrificial. 1 Corinthians 13, early in the chapter, in verse 1, Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have the faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. Verse 3, if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. We like to, uh, to play this game in our heads and our modern cultures. Like, we, we, can be, we can be good by doing the good things. Or, yeah, he's not, he's not very loving, but, but he's very wise. Or, yeah, but he gives a lot to the poor. What this is saying right here, none of that means anything if it isn't based in love. So we have this image here of this incredibly powerful, cannot be killed, always perseveres, always and lifts others up aspect. This is what love is, but it is so vital and so important that to fail to embody this idea of love is essentially to make yourself nothing, that nothing else matters except for love. So this is an incredibly important thing that we're trying to wrap our minds around. Incredibly important concept that God is trying to, to drill into us here with love. See, love, this idea of, of love, sacrificial love, of agape love, this is a love that is based entirely on the other. It is a sacrifice by its very nature. It's an action taken on, on behalf of the other, with no expectation of return. All right? It's a love that's given first. It's a love that's given without expectation, without keeping score. Uh, in the 90s, there was this movie called Jerry Maguire. Who here has seen it? Raise your hand if you've seen Jerry Maguire. Awesome. All right. As someone who has counseled new couples, uh, my least favorite movie in the world is Jerry Maguire. <laughs> 
just saying that. There's a line near the end of it that just like became like this, this like romantic mantra of our culture. You know, in, in Act 3, you know, boy meet, the boy has met girl and they've had this relationship and they had the falling apart and then like a normal romantic comedy, here's that final climactic scene where they come together and, and Jerry Maguire says the line, you complete me. And it's supposed to be this big romantic moment and I'm sitting in the theater going, no! <laughs> because that image of somehow me needing you, that I am not okay without the other person. That's an incorrect view of love that has permeated our culture. That's not love, that's called codependence. Love, true love, is about acting entirely on behalf of the other without expectation of return. It means that I am okay on choosing to act on behalf of you. That I have the power and, the, and the, the, the ability to stand on my own. But I am choosing to act on your behalf. I'm not expecting anything back. I'm not expecting to be somehow made complete. I'm not expecting gifts in return. I'm not even expecting your love in return. It's entirely on your behalf. That's this idea of agape love. Sound familiar? This idea of love is actually very similar to the biblical idea of grace. Given freely, without expectation, without returns, without keeping score. Both require that favor be given without expectation of return. Love is a gift. That is this agape love. Love is a gift given on behalf of someone else. All right, let's look at the, the most quoted Bible verse in all of Scripture. All right? Most of you will be able to say this aloud with me, and actually I'm going to invite you to say it along with me here in a second. John 3.16. You guys know it? All right, here we go. We're going to say John 3.16. Here we go. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Does anyone know the next verse? Verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Now let's focus in on that beginning of that verse. For God so loved the world. We often look at this and we read it as, you know, God loved us so much that he sent his son to die. And while that's, that's true, that's actually not what the text says in the original Greek. That's just not how the sentence works. The word that we translate as for um, can mean a bunch of different things, but usually means in this way is, is a good translation of it. So in other words, what we're saying here in, in John 3.16 is not God loves you so much, his love was so great that he went the extra mile and sent his son. No, no, no. He's saying God loved you like this. He sent his son. And that's, that's a really fine line, but it makes all the difference. You actually see that in different translations of Scripture. If you read the New Living Translation, the New Living Translation says, um, New Living Translation says, for this is how God loved the world, that he gave his only son. Holman Christian Standard Version says, for God loved the world in this way. 
He gave his only son. In other words, this verse that we all know is not about saying, like, God's love is so extreme that he sent his son. Rather, it's saying, this is an example of what love looks like. God sent his son to die for you. This is that sacrificial love I'm talking about. God loved you in this way that he sent his one and only son to die for you. So what does this look like in action here? John 13, actually. Uh, here, here is Jesus in his ministry. And Jesus actually says this in verse 34. A new command I give you, love one another, agape each other. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love, if you agape one another. Jesus commands us as his people, to love like he does. So it begs the question, how did Jesus love us? What did he do? He served. He humbled himself. He took on the role of a slave, a criminal. He came into the world as a helpless baby in a stable. And he died. He gave his life for our benefit. That's the model that he wants us to follow. That's the model. When he says, I want you to love people like I do, and that's how people will know you're my follower, he's saying, I want you to be willing to die for other people. I want you to sacrifice for other people. I want you to lay your life on the line. I want you to serve. I want you to allow yourself to be seen as low so that someone else might be lifted up. That's the model that he wants us to follow. This agape, sacrificial, committed love is all about giving on behalf of the other. And it is hard. It is really, really hard. It is really tough to love like this because this is not what our culture teaches. Our culture teaches that love is a two-way street, that, that I love and you love me and then we can have a commitment. Like, no, no, but that's not what Jesus is saying. That's not what the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying love is something that you act first on, that you love someone first, that you love others first, that you make yourself vulnerable. That is hard to do. That is hard to do because when we're vulnerable, we're afraid. Because if I'm vulnerable, I can be hurt. Someone could misuse my act of compassion. Someone could see it as weakness and come after me. I could get hurt in the process. Put myself all out there, shoot my shot, and then have heartache. This is why scripture tells us that the opposite of love is not hate. We frequently talk about love and hate being opposites. They're not. Scripture does not say that love and hate are opposites. Scripture says that the opposite of love is actually fear. Fear. 
And this is why. If love is about the other, if love is sacrificing on behalf of the other person, being vulnerable, then the opposite of that would be to close up ranks, to batten down the hatches, and to protect yourself, to be fearful. We see this confirmed in Scripture in uh, 1 John 4, verse 18. There is no fear in love. Love and fear are like light and dark. Dark is merely the absence of light. It's not a power in and of itself. It's just the absence of light. So if you open a, a door in a dark room, light flows in. Dark doesn't push the light out. In the same way, love and fear are the same thing. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment, being worried about repercussions. The one who fears is not made in perfect love. And then verse 19, we love because he first loved us. Perfect love drives out fear. Opening the door into the dark room means the light rushes in and pushes the darkness aside. Love conquers fear. So the thing that gets in the way of us being able to love others, to be able to have this compassion for others, to sacrificially agape the rest of the world, it's not anger, it's not hate, it's not bitterness, it's not self-righteousness. All those things get in the way, but all those are just effects of fear. It's fear that gets in the way. Fear of being hurt. Fear of our vulnerability being used against us. Fear that your act of love and compassion will be seen as weakness and exploited. Fear that our act of compassion won't change anything. How often do we hear, oh no, you can't give him money, he's just going to use it to buy booze. Right? Don't waste your time loving them, it won't change anything. Who said it's about changing anything? We're supposed to love people. Fear gets in the way of love. But how do we drive out that fear? By embracing love. By embracing the love that is given to you. And this is where we get back to that fateful night in Bethlehem. When we talk about Jesus being born in this manger... It's not just a baby. We're talking about God. This is the creator of heaven and earth. This is the one who knows everything about everything. The one who is worthy of all royalty, all honors, all titles, all praises. This is God. And he chose to come to earth in the weakest, lowest, most vulnerable way possible as a helpless baby. He came to a young woman from a, a backwater country, from Galilee. Actually, it comes from Nazareth. Later, in the, later in, the, um, in the Bible, it talks about how nothing good can ever come from Nazareth. So it comes to this no-name family out of, out of Nazareth. Granted, it comes through David, but, but Mary, is, she's not necessarily special up to this point. He comes in the form of this helpless baby placed in a feeding trough. That's what a manger is. It's a feeding trough. There wasn't even a place to put the baby, so they put him in the slimy, gross feeding trough where animals eat. His first court was, he didn't hold court with generals and aristocrats and leaders. He held court with camels. 
and donkeys and sheep. His birth was announced by shepherds, not heralds, by shepherds, the people who were the most common of the common people in the country at the time, shepherds. He grew up to be a homeless, wandering teacher. He had the power to command literal angel armies as well as human armies. Let's be honest, he could have called them to act. But instead, he chose a life of a humble servant. He taught about grace and humility and sacrifice and love. He could have taken any throne with the snap of his finger. He could have toppled any power on earth with a thought. Yet he allowed himself to be raised up, not on a throne, but on a cross. He has all of the power in the universe. Complete innocence to claim, just to claim any power he wanted. And yet, he submits to punishment that he didn't earn. It was punishment that was meant for us. And in doing so, by taking on this brutal punishment, he pays my price. He forgives me. He pays the price that was meant for me. He substitutes himself on that cross when it should have been me. After all of this, this is God. This is the the greatest. This is the king. This is the creator of everything. And he goes to the cross for me. Giving me the freedom to cast off my scars, to cast off my messes, to claim my identity as a child of God, as someone who's loved. Folks, the baby that comes on Christmas is the same one who dies on Good Friday and the same one who comes out of that tomb on Easter. And all of this was done for you. Because God loved the world in this way. He sent his one and only son. You are loved. I don't know who needs to hear this this morning, online or here in the room or whatever. I don't know who needs to hear this, but you are loved. You are are loved. You are cherished. You are God's prized creation. You are, some, he, you are someone that he boasts about. He adores you. And that love is offered to you without expectation. It's given without keeping score. You don't need to earn it. It's already yours. Regardless of where you are in life, regardless of whether or not you have anything figured out at all, it doesn't matter how, if, you, if you think you're a good person or a bad person. It doesn't matter if you struggle with sin, if you struggle with personal identity, addiction, or anger. It doesn't even matter if you're a member of a church or not. You, as a human being, as someone who is fearfully and wonderfully made, created in the image of God, you are loved. God knows everything about you. He knows the deepest, darkest secrets in the back of your head that you pretend not to have. And he loves you anyway. If you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. You are loved. When you let that reality set in, when you let that reality change you, fear 
melts away. Fear goes away. The choice to be vulnerable, the choice to show compassion, it becomes easy because it's not about you. God's got you. You're loved. The creator of the universe adores you. What else matters? Nothing else in this world could ever stick. They could throw anything at you. It doesn't matter. You're loved. So you suddenly have the freedom to be able to love others in return with that kind of earth-shattering identity as a child of God that the creator of the universe loves you. You can even love your enemies. You can love people who want to kill you. Because there's no fear in that. God's got you. God loves you. You are so cherished and so valuable. Nothing that anybody else says or does matters. You suddenly have the freedom to show compassion on your neighbor. You have the ability to, to reconcile broken relationships at that point. You can live in a way that radically changes the world around you and all of the power structures around us all because we embrace this idea that at our core, we are loved. To embrace this concept of true biblical love is to embrace our identities as children of God. Understanding and accepting agape love gives us the, the freedom to live as we were meant to live, to be a people who love, to be who we were made to be. We can be the church. We can be the movement of God. We can love anybody. We can change the world. It doesn't matter if we agree or disagree. It doesn't, doesn't matter. Broken relationship, it doesn't matter. We can get over all of that pride because no matter what, the creator of heaven and earth loves you. He thinks you're valuable. He thinks you're so valuable that he died for you. What can anybody else say or do to even come close to shaking that? The ultimate gift that we receive on Christmas is love. It's love that sets us free from our past scars, from our messes, from our old identities, from all the things that weigh us down. None of that matters because the only identity that matters is that we're a child of God thanks to this baby. That love that ha- to be able to have all the power in the universe and choose to be helpless for our sake. Wrap your head around that. When you embrace that identity that that allows you to have, there's no, uh, there's no stopping you. We become a powerful community The ultimate gift that we receive on Christmas is love. 
love that frees us from our past scars, gives us new purpose, new identity, and the freedom to let that love flow and change the world around us. I want to leave you with a quote, one of my favorite authors. He has the best name in the world, by the way. His name is Miroslav Volf. Say that three times fast. (laughs) Miroslav Volf. Um, He's a great author. He's written a whole bunch of books. Some of them are really deep theological studies. Some of them are really easy reads. One of my very favorite books that completely changed my understanding of love and grace and ministry is this book called Free of Charge. Um, You can get it online for like five bucks. It's worth a read. Um, But Free of Charge, and it's just this basic rundown of, of love as gift, love as grace, and this idea of what is love, what is grace. And in it, he says these words, and I, I just want to kind of want to end the sermon on this concept. He says, God's gifts aim at making us into generous givers, not just fortunate receivers. God gives so that we, in human measure, can be givers too. Our gift is love. And he's given us that so that we have the freedom to love others. Let's pray. Dear Father, I cannot even begin to comprehend this idea of love, this idea of agape. All I know is that I am changed by it. I, I'm a messed up guy on my own. Heck, I'm a messed up guy with you. I don't understand You love me. In my darkest moments, you love me. That changes me. That that changes me to my core. Because if you love me, if the creator of the universe thinks that that I am somehow special, what is anybody else going to do? Suddenly I have the freedom to love in ways I never thought possible. So God, right now, my prayer is that anybody hearing my voice, whether they're online or here, I pray that they have that understanding of love as well. That that identity that you offer, I pray that for them. I pray that identity as children of God, that that just settles in our hearts so, so deeply that that it drives out all fear. When we understand how much even a, 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 a fraction of how much you love us, that that would push away any fear that we have. So that gives us the freedom to love in radical ways. God, we love you. We do. In Jesus' name, amen.